This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today founded Concierge Marketing that offers complete publishing services for independent authors and publishers. She is a whiz with product development, writing, editing, printing, marketing, distribution, and sales. If you've written a book or ever wanted to, this is the person you want in your corner. Coming up, we talk books with the page-turner of publishing, Lisa Pelto. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hi, Pat. Hey, welcome. Thank you for having me. I have so many friends that are writers that don't know the first thing to do after they've written. And so I thought you would be a fabulous guest to sort of just shine a light on all the things that happen to bring a book to the marketplace. A lot of times people do come to me after they've written, and I'm always wishing they had come to me before they started writing. But <laughs> If an author is thinking about writing, what's the very first piece of advice you would give them thinking about their book or their structure or any of that kind of thing? One of the things that I think people forget about is that if they're planning on publishing, they're writing it for someone else. You know, it's an extraction. They're taking something out of their own brain, putting it in something tangible, and hopefully inserting it in someone else's brain. So it's surgery. <laughs> oh, it is surgery. And you know what? And there's an audience, intended audience. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. A lot of times there there is no audience. They're just trying, it's art, uh, and they're trying to express art. And that's okay too. But we do want to make sure if they plan on publishing, that there's an audience for it. How often does an author come to you with something that's essentially a memoir or their own take on things? Daily, more than daily. Gosh, the gamut of stuff that people bring to me is really astounding. A lot of times people have some sort of wisdom that they learned some, you know, through life. And those are usually the ones that are most successful when they're trying to share something they've already experience. They're trying to change the world or they already changed the world in some way. You know, with fiction, they're inventing their own world. So they're a whole different, <laughs> a whole different group. A lot of times people do have something that they think is interesting. And you know, I hate to say this, but you know, people always want to do something about their dog. They're fascinating, amazing dog, but everybody has a fascinating, amazing dog. <laughs> they're writing their dog's autobiography or yes. a barkography. A barkography. <laughs> All right. So I'm a first time author. This is sort of, I'm pre-creating an assumption here. And I come to you and I say, Hey, I got this great idea and I want to put it down on paper and get it to you. What stages in the very beginning, obviously there has to be the discipline to write it, but is the first thing you're doing is reading it draft one. Is that kind of the relationship you like to begin with, as opposed to somebody walking in with a pile of 180 pages saying, Hey, make my book. Boy, it's all over the place. A lot of times people have an idea and they have not written something. So we're working on what's your working title? What is, yesterday I had this conversation. What is your destination? What are you trying to achieve with this book? Set your destination and then do a table of contents. Never call a book outline an outline. Always call it a table of contents because you're more likely to get it done. I always start with how who is going to have that book in their hands and love it. I want to know who is buying it, who cares that you wrote a book or that you're writing a book. And then we kind of work backwards from there. 
And I feel like those are the most successful books. One of our best-selling books, the author was writing eBay listings for hotel keys and menus. And, and he started having a following on eBay. He had 15,000 people reading his listings on eBay. We put together 21 of those, uh, Steve Fisher in 2005. And it's still to this day, one of the top selling Las Vegas history books out there. He passed away a couple years ago. He never intended to write a book. What was the title of that book? When the Mob Ran Vegas. But he was a good writer, obviously. He was a good storyteller, and I think that's that's the majority of the job of a writer is telling the story so someone else can understand where you're coming from. Writing is sort of not secondary, but sort of the skill that gets you there to telling the story. And that's something that people should hone is the writing skill. Uh, versus telling the story, that's innate, I believe. I find that at Thanksgiving table, when people aren't put under pressure to tell a story, they naturally find the highlights. You know, they always begin with some superlative, like the funniest thing ever happened to me, or you're never going to guess what happened yesterday. Like, they know how to tee it up. If you say to somebody, story from your childhood, they panic. Right. <laughs> but if they're in conversation, I think most people are naturally storytellers. Although I had one potential client come in who is very famous boxer and he sits across from me and he says, oh, I got stories. I have million stories. I'm like, oh, really? Let's, let's hear them. What do you want to put in your book? What do you want to do with it? And he's like, well, once I was the bodyguard for Tom Jones. And I'm like, wow, what happened? I mean, what? he's like, I, I was a bodyguard. Oh. It was like, that was it. <laughs> there was never any trouble. Yeah, right. well, I'm like, well, that's a postcard. So <laughs> I don't think you have a book there. <laughs> I find this as a sitcom writer. People always said to me, I have a great idea for a sitcom. And they would say, you know, because maybe they were hairdressed. They say so many funny things happened in the salon. It would make a great sitcom. And I said, well, that's a location. And then they would say, yeah, all I need is somebody to write it. And I go, well... I'm out. That's not an idea worth collaborating on. Not to say that it, the characters couldn't be funny or the situations, but, you know, it's not going to be the CSI hairdressing episode, you know. Have you read On Writing by Stephen King? Yes. So I highly recommend listening to the audiobook too, because it's him reading it. It's very animated. But uh, he talks about putting two two unrelated things together. You're talking about the beauty shop with zombie or whatever whatever, and what would happen from that. And that's how he creates his stories is he takes two unrelated things and puts them together to create his ultimate plot lines and story. Sure. Yeah. Children and a cornfield. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a hotel and a psycho, you know. Right. But it is, it is a good point is to put a juxtaposition. Important in all writing is some kind of conflict in order to create tension. And then on the other side of it, the resolution is when the story wraps up. Right. Because when somebody tells a story about a ship that leaves on time from one port and arrives at the other on time, it's pretty boring. But if they hit an iceberg in the middle, then there's drama. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that, That's a big drama. <laughs> well, I mean, the Titanic would have would not have been a story at all had, right. it, had it left on time and arrived on time. Right, right. Uh, now, you authored a book yourself. You authored a book called Meet Me at the Farmer's Market. And part of that is because you spent so much time in farmer's markets in a book stand selling the various authors' books. 
So is that where the idea came from? Or because it seems to me like there has never been a book about going to a farmer's market before. There were some books, actually. I was selling books, like you said, in the farmer's market every week. And a little girl came up with her. Her mom and dad were were vendors at the, the uh, farmer's market. And she would buy some, a children's book. And one day, she's six years old, Violet. And she's like, how come you don't have your own book? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you want to help me write it? What do you like to do at the farmer's market? So she told me some of the things she likes to do. Came back that afternoon and wrote the book in two hours and then spent 30 hours editing it. <laughs> Sent it to the illustrator that I wanted to have do it. And uh, she was well into it by Monday when I called her. We did the first iteration of the book, released it in 2018. And then got hammered on like Goodreads, Amazon. So there were a few people that absolutely hated the book. And what they said was that it looked like an elite white neighborhood. And it was like, well, these are our farmer's markets here, our white tents, you know, the beautiful vegetables and all that stuff. So I started looking around at other farmer's markets around the community, went up to Chicago and looked at a few, went to, you know, just along the roadside in small towns. And they were right. After after I saw four or five comments like that, it kind of, to me, that was a trend. I don't respond to every single criticism immediately, but I did see a trend there. So we took out a few of the pages that had the pretty white tents and put in a, a truck filled with corn and then uh, one that showed how plants were grown and then called the Farmer's Market Coalition and said, what do you think of this? So I asked experts in the field that actually work with other farmer's markets. They looked at it and they loved it. And so I work with them a lot. Um, and then there's a like a SNAP program in Massachusetts that uses it for all of the children that, are, that go through their educational program now. And all I had to do was make, you know, three major page changes. Like I took complete illustrations out and replaced them. I really like this story for many reasons, but I like the fact that you were a responsible author and editor with an awareness. Because once we become aware of language or words or ideas that aren't necessarily representative of things, it shows a great deal of respect and courtesy there because it didn't change your story. It didn't change the adventure, but it did make it more inclusive. And I think nowadays we need to be more tolerant of those those notions. It's pretty shocking when you are a author of a book to get those reviews. You don't expect that you're going to start that. 880 words in the book and some of the reviews were 1500 words. Oh, <laughs> the <funny>. bad reviews. <laughs> wow. There's the lesson. I may have mentioned this once before on the podcast, but we had a, a whole bunch of five-star reviews on the podcast. And one day there was a one-star review, the worst you can get. And I read it, and the last sentence in it is, I should know, I'm the host's mother. <laughs> and I thought, what in the <laughs> world? Thanks, and my mom couldn't have been prouder because she thought one star was the best. Oh. <laughs> but once that's on the internet, it's there forever, right? So yep. it is, it's kind of a hoot. So yep. now I call her a one-star mom. That's right? awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, bringing up that, the, the one-star reviews, when we're creating a product, a lot of times I'll have the author sit down and look at competitive titles and read the one-star reviews and say, what's missing from 
this product line or this market offering. You know, they we did a diapering book uh, called, it started out being called Hip Mom's Guide to Modern Cloth Diapering. And we changed it to Changing Diapers, <laughs> the low-hanging fruit, right? And then the, the subtitle was the Hip Mom's Guide to Modern Cloth Diapering. But we looked at the one-star reviews in there and the, the complaints were there were no diagrams, there were no pictures and things like that. So our product had pictures and diagrams and all kinds of stuff like that. And it became a bestseller. It was, it was our second bestseller. <laughs> we like to call it a number two bestseller when we talk about <laughs> diaper books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I look at the goal. What is the goal in publishing? Or I mean, what is the overall goal that the person is trying to achieve? Publishing a book might just be one of the strategies. We had this conversation with a gentleman who has a mentoring foundation out in California, and he wants to increase his speaking engagements and, and spread the word to different communities. And he called me and he went to some seminar where they were talking about becoming number one on Amazon with your book and thinking that would get him speaking engagements. And in fact, the speaker said that would happen if you got 50 reviews. And I said, it doesn't work that way. You don't become number one on Amazon from 50 reviews. Reviews could happen over years. Ranking, number one ranking happens every three hours. Those change. Right. It's based on sales, right? Well, it's based on an algorithm that is like the, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken's 11 <laughs> herbs and spices. We don't really know what goes in there, but it's sales. It's also searches, wish lists, people searching your name, the title, all kinds of things. So what I asked him is, what are you actually trying to achieve here? His goal was to increase his speaking one of the strategies we decided to follow was fixing his book so it could be emailed and then it's truncated so they have to ask for more. And then they get a white paper that he's writing about something more modern and then they get a 30-minute consultation with him. So the strategies are what gets you to the goal. A book is not the goal. But I, my guess is the woman that wrote the cloth diaper changing book had something to impart on the world she was informed and interested in the cloth diaper movement. <laughs> the movement. Movement. That's good. No, no, oh. I didn't. <laughs> okay, let me apologize to the author because that was not intentional. I don't even know what to say about that kind of movement when it happens accidentally. Her actual goal was to change the laws in eastern seaboard states to allow cloth diapers in hospitals and daycares. They did not allow it. It was against the law to have a cloth diaper in there. So her main goal was to be able to testify in front of the legislatures of different communities. She's known as the diaper whisperer, actually. Jeez, oh, that's good. I'm not kidding. This lady came here for an author retreat. She flew, she was flying to Omaha from Maine for her author retreat where we get all, the whole team together. So she meets everybody and knows what's going on. But she announced on her social media that she was coming to Nebraska for this author retreat. It's like when she got on the plane at six, six o'clock or whatever, she lands in Chicago at 11 o'clock and she has 250 comments, not just likes. She has 900 likes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we need to have like a meet and greet or something. When you get here, she gets on her plane. She gets here at one o'clock. We had a meet and greet at the Marriott over here in Regency. And there were about 80 people here, some of which had driven three hours to meet her. 
a diaper lady. Sounds like that's who should be on the podcast if we really want to grow this. <laughs> the book is just another tool, a marketing tool or a conversation starter or a, a way to remind people or to bring a tribe together of some kind. You work with authors that are clients of mine. Brian McDonald has been on this podcast and he is the author of a book called Invisible Inc., which we moved his publishing under his own banner. The publisher that had the book previously had dried up and he began his own publishing company called Talking Drum. And he was able to, with your help, retain all of the books and intellectual property and create his own store through Amazon. So that's probably happening more and more. Absolutely. So the more difficult thing when you do that is distribution. How do you market so people can find you on Amazon or other places? What do you recommend when somebody self-publishes for getting the word out? It depends on the what the book is about. It totally depends on the audience. How does a person that would read that material get their information? So we always start with distribution first. How is that person going to find their information? Do they respond to email? Are they on social media? Some audiences aren't. We also want to know who the buyer is and who the reader is. Sometimes they are not the same person. The grandmas buy a ton of hardcovers for their grandchildren. Teachers buy paperbacks for their students because they're spending their own money, you know. So we want to know how they are most likely to get their information because it's a big waste of money to mass advertise a book. Like Brian's book, we would never want to even presume that a mass audience would be able to consume that book. But a book is a, a series of commitments. So it's a commitment of a writer to a reader. It's a commitment of uh, from a publisher to the buyer that they're going to have product in the format. It's going to be properly edited and it's going to look nice and, and all of the stuff a buyer would care about. Because especially if it's a gift book, they're going to be giving a gift. They want it to look nice. They don't want to be embarrassed if they've given a gift to someone. The commitment of a nonfiction book is different. Let's say Brian's book. His commitment is not the $19.95 price to, for the 200 pages in the book and the cover and all that. His commitment to them is that they're going to spend eight hours reading it and they're going to get something out of it. And to give the listener context, it's a book about story structure and writing for screenwriters, for novelists, for folks like that. But a nonfiction book further, you know, not just Brian's, but a lot of nonfiction that is particularly self-help and business books, they're asking somebody for a life change. That's the commitment. It's not the ink on pages. It's you know, if you do this, this will change your life kind of thing. <laughs> Writers have to realize the commitment they're asking for when they're formulating what they're doing in their book. People are writing books in 15 minutes on chat GPT. They put in a question, get the outline, ask the questions for each, each part of the outline that chat GPT does, and they're putting up a book in an hour. I mean, they're terrible, but <laughs> it's a real problem. Well, that's a concern. I guess I, that's definitely an area I want to delve into with you because people have sent me things where they said, hey, I uh, hope you don't mind this questionnaire. It was generated by AI. And I think you're asking for my time to respond to your survey that you don't have time to write. That's, that's embarrassing to me. Much earlier, you mentioned the table of contents. And that is essentially a foundational outline that says, this is what I hope to achieve in this book. So if they're then delegating that off to ChatGPT, I don't even know how to say it. That's how unhip I am. 
chat LMNOP, let's yeah. say, if they are sending that out and then they're coming back and they're tweaking it, I mean, it feels like that it's being sort of crowdsourced, that writing. It's not really the author. Yeah, I'm not sure how it accesses what it's accessing, but the chance for plagiarism, I would think, is enormous. I just can't imagine it would come up with something that can adhere to a, how a person thinks or reacts to something. I don't know how it's happening, but it's very, very big in the industry right now. And there's a lot of people that are do, that are generating books like that. And there's a lot of ads that once you type something into Facebook, you know, it becomes then your main interest. You know, a lot of people are putting up that you can write a book in an hour. But there's also the Writers Guild and a lot of the the Screen Actors Guild, their protest on taking the AI stuff and not paying actors anymore and all that stuff. I think there's a lot more activism happening that's very good and productive uh, to combat against that. Intended to be productive and protective, not to stop it altogether. Because Believe me, there are many things in our life that AI can stay up through the night doing for us research that are valuable in medicine and other fields. But in terms of creative speech writing, I would think that one of the great dangers would be that it's aggregating all the ideas that some of it may be misinformation, reiterating false comments because it's found enough of them that it counts to be a fact. Yeah, yeah, that is a real big danger. It's a very good point. And the other thing I think, especially where it comes to heart and humor, is that luckily right now AI doesn't have that human heartbeat. So I don't think it quite knows how to write jokes. Like if you have some effort read it back to you, it can be tremendously unfunny. And then you realize it's because it doesn't know what it's saying. One of the other problems, somebody sent me a manuscript that I felt did not sound like them. So I asked questions to to the chat GPT. I asked questions that I thought would elicit the answers that they had in their manuscript. And it was word for word. Wow. I mean, maybe one word was different, but it was scary looking at that, thinking people are relying on that. Well, I, I can see why people want to save money. Like, let's say a producer or a brand who might say, hey, we don't need a copywriter now. We can do this. But I do think that it, it really misses that personal touch. And I'm not trying to keep people in work. I just think there are people who are very good at those things, at the heart, at the humor. You know, everybody can take a picture that's worthy of the cover of National Geographic because their iPhone's technology is so good. So then the question is proximity. Where are they? Are they in the river where the fish is jumping in the mouth of the of the bear? No, they're not. That's some guy that wades out there in waders and spends six hours out. So I think there is value in that photographer being celebrated and continued to give that person the covers. But just like movie reviews and book reviews, all of that has gone away. There's no writers in the newspaper covering theater. They're just relying on audiences. That then puts the opinions, not just in the hands of anybody, but the companies themselves are able to generate their own reviews of their own work because it comes from whoever, however they flood the market. Do you find that with books that people are trying to game the system to get on bestseller lists? Absolutely. I know. And I just don't think, I know they are doing that. There are companies where you can pay them to have their squads across the country go in at the same time and buy a book. 
and that makes you a, a bestseller. You know, it all has to happen at a certain time. So they go out and go to the big box bookstores that are recorded. They have to be at a recorded bookstore, one that reports. So there's something similar to, you know, the Nielsen things that we used to have for TV. There's something similar in the book industry too, where it all has to be reported. But I was standing at a very large bookstore when the World Herald called the bookstore to ask what, what Omaha's reading. I watched the girl do it. She opened up the New York Times bestseller list and read it off to her. Wow. <laughs> that one in the paper. So those those days are gone. They don't even have a book section in the in most newspapers these days. Those are gamed. And then you can also, with this big company or several big companies you pay them, it's extremely expensive. $250,000 sometimes for them to have a squad go out and buy books. If you look at the bestseller list, like in PW and New York Times, there's a tiny little dagger underneath it kind of looks like a cross but it is a dagger underneath their designation as where they are on the bestseller list and that shows that it was purchased in an unusual way like by bulk or something like that so you can see this little tiny thing oh that's fascinating because i was gonna say there are many people politicians where a book gets written with the intent of being you know, a place to put them in front of their audience. It's part of a bigger campaign and they buy a, a whole skid full of books that are sitting in a garage somewhere. And it seems like that happens a lot. The author is sitting on an arsenal of books they purchased themselves. Absolutely. Politicians are famous for that. I won't name any, but <laughs> I know one in particular that definitely 100% did that. They bought uh, at the same time had people buy them all across the country in bulk from the big box bookstores. Again, for it to end up on the bestseller list, it does have to, like New York Times and USA Today and those, it does have to go through that process where they're at a reported location. So little bookstores that sell a lot of books, you know, they are not even counted. Let me take a minute to shift gears to printing and production, because once this book is made, it has to go through this process. Now, you are often recommending that people have a print-to-order book as opposed to having, if they're not sending it out to a lot of places. Tell me about that, how long a printing takes and uh, what people can expect from a production standpoint from the moment they say, the book is ready. The illustrations are there, we've got a cover. What can they expect in terms of turnaround time? Depends on how many how many they need. In pre-pandemic, a production run would take five weeks during the sp supply chain issues and all that. Unfortunately, about 15 years ago, all the paper companies went just in time for the pulp. So they were having trouble getting pulp. It's still an issue today. I can't get natural paper at, pr at printing houses. It ta it's taking me 10, 11 weeks to get something that I used to get in five weeks, unless I want to just switch to white paper. So we do printing in lots of different ways. It kind of depends on what the author is planning on doing. If they're speaking or if they're doing a lot of appearances, we might print 1,500 or 2,000 books, whatever might get them through like four to six months. But you also anybody that gets talked into a lot of printing is usually talking to a printer. Printer's job is to sell printing. What they don't tell the author in that kind of a scenario is now you have to store, insure, climate control, keep pests away. You don't store it in your garage because it absorbs moisture and smells and mice eat it, you know, whatever it is. 
so they, those are additional costs. Plus now they have to have envelopes and labels and boxes and all that stuff. So my thought process goes again, how is that person that wants to read the book going to get that book? Most books are sold online these days. The majority of books that are in bookstores, there's a very small number of books actually on the shelves in bookstores compared to what is available. There's what 160 million books in print, but a typical big bookstore will have 15,000 titles in it. But they may only have three or four a dozen at the most of, of some author. They Most of the time they have one. And most bookstores have gone spine out to front cover out. So there are even fewer titles in most bookstores. So, which, I mean, I like having the cover showing in, in bookstores because I think they're more impactful than a spine. But with the printing, we use, since we have this hybrid opportunity, we can print some when they have personal appearances and, and signings. And then the online stuff is all handled print on demand. You know, there are lots of companies that do that, but the ones that we choose are ones where you do not have to give up any of your rights with Brian's books. You're retaining all of the publishing rights, not just the copyright but all of the publishing rights as well. And then the shipping is inclusive in the purchase. That business of putting it in an envelope or a box, paying the postage, there's an awful lot that goes into having the books in your care, other than if you need to have enough of them to, to give away to grandma and somebody else. I've been doing this for 42 years, and it's really the first time that an author has been able to control their inventory and their costs and things because they don't have to have this huge cost outlay for printing. And the unit cost for print on demand, I've done plenty of comparisons and I try and run this at least every half a year. The, you'd have to buy 1,200 books to get the unit cost on, on a lot of specs, 1,200 to get the same unit cost as you're paying print on demand right now. We did a book together over the pandemic. I had a, a niece who is a poet and because my business of performing and directing commercials shut down because there wasn't really venues to work in and there wasn't crews together to shoot and you know, it was about keeping people apart. I thought it would be interesting <laughs> to publish, but I'm guessing we weren't unique in that lots of people had a chance to finish their book and then there must've been a flood on the market for printing and production and distribution. There must be a boom right now in books written over the pandemic. Well, actually, it's kind of past. There were a lot of books written during the pandemic and a lot of books published during the pandemic. There's kind of been a, a shift in the way people buy books, too. It used to be that you would stagger, you know, you do the hardcover, then you do a paperback or, you know, then your ebook and audiobook. Now, I think the pandemic had an effect, at least in my shop, where people want what they want when they when they have been convinced to buy it. And if it's not there, they move on to the next thing. So we'll release a hardcover, paperback, audiobook, and ebook all at the same time now, um, just because of a consumer behavior changed so much during that time. So I think that's the major change. I, I, I didn't see any kind of downturn on the number of books. The budgets, yes, those went down a lot. And then, and a lot of it was because they do not have to have physical books. They all sell online. In working with my brother, who's got a uh, homeschool business, that there were difficulties getting a lot of things, getting paper from China, getting books off of boats, being sure that if they did 
finish at a major publishing house? Was there people working in the warehouse that could even move it from the shelf to uh, shipping? Everything was delay, 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 every possible version of that. But the people that I think that the pandemic impacted the least were those quiet, lone writers who were already shut-ins. They worked from their office or bedroom. They kind of didn't notice shelter in place because that's how they live. They're entertained by their writing and they come out the other side with a, sort of the book being finished and everyone else is like, "I what did I do? I learned to make sourdough bread and pickles. <laughs> that's creative too, though. <laughs> Listen, our life is just about trying to fill time between laundry and dishes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let me ask your advice on if a person has written a book completely, the major publishing houses aren't going to take it. I think that's everybody's fantasy, right? Is that, oh, this is going to be on bookstores and in libraries everywhere. That's pretty rare these days, isn't it? Yes, it's very rare. And you don't you don't need them. A lot of the writers that used to publish that way, Joan Collins and, and uh, Alex Cava, and a lot of them are bringing their backlist into their own publishing house now because you just don't need the big publishers. And once someone else is paying the bill for creative and editorial and marketing and all that stuff, you lose the creative and editorial control of your own intellectual property. So I think it's been a, a good trend in a way. But if you look at the Forbes billionaires and millionaires, most of them are publishers. <laughs> They're making money off of someone else's intellectual property always. But if somebody wants their book, let's say in libraries, there, there are places where you can write press releases or send it to library buyers. How does that work? Well, you have to have a distribution of some sort for the for libraries, but the most important thing is to get reviews on your books. Um, so there are, and I'm not talking about Amazon testimonials, which they call them reviews on Amazon, but those are user testimonials. Critical reviews from like School Library Journal, Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, all of these places, they have a critical reviewer look at it from the aspect of what is in the marketplace now in that particular genre and how does it fit? How does it fill a hole? Is it quality? And those kinds of things. Those have a bigger impact for libraries than anything. Is it submitted through an agent or a lawyer or something, or you just submit it and hope that they pick it up? You can submit those now on your own. We just did a bunch this morning. There's a fee for them, but they're the exact same reviewers that do the organic reviews for, you know, for the big publishers where they send something and Publishers Weekly will review something and put it in their magazine. But an independent can do that now. It, it was a very big struggle for many years to have the big reviewers pay any attention to independent and self-published books. I'm not talking about DIY when I say self-published. I want to make sure I say that. That does not mean you do all of the stuff in your basement. That means you retain all the ownership and you're the general contractor in self-publishing. And people a lot of times are worried about doing their own formatting and creating a cover. And even though they can do it on Canva, if they don't have the capability <laughs> to put together a piece of art, it really turns out bad. We've come to you with clients or an author where you are getting the ISBN number, what is it? Yeah, ISBN. And you're getting it into Library of Congress. It's designated in some way so it can be identified as a 
a book in the marketplace. The industry compliance is kind of a small part of it. So publishing is actually not the printing part necessarily. That's one little part of it. The publishing is all the stuff you're talking about. It's getting it into the industry, distributing it. Publishing is a distribution of something to the public. It's not just the, just one aspect of that. It's more like, you know, you're looking at the product. What does it fit in the marketplace? Does it deliver the promise that you're making on the cover and the back cover copy and the description on Amazon? Does it deliver that the product itself? You're looking at pricing strategy. Can you make money in all of the different scenarios of selling that book? with a distributor, through Amazon, in a bookstore, at a library, on your own when you're selling it. Not that everybody's goal is to make money, but you don't want to lose money. You know, if you have a, a thousand page book, can anybody make that? We just dealt with that. And no, <laughs> it's not in the print on demand world. It's going to look terrible and people won't buy it because it'll be too expensive. They can make it. But will it sell? The one that I was looking at would, would have been about $75 to print the book and they would actually be able to sell it for about 20. <laughs> so in the marketplace, when people think publishing, they think promotion and their baby is going to be distributed to the world, you know, <laughs> but that's only part of the whole process. Well, earlier you mentioned knowing the illustrator that you were going to use for your own book regarding the farmer's market. So you obviously have resources for that. But if somebody has written a book, a children's book or some other thing that needs illustrations, is there a place that people can go and search illustrators or find partners? Because I would think that that's a birthing process too, which is finding the right style and right tone with the art. People do not realize that there are different kinds of art. They think, I need an illustrator. <laughs> and so I say, go to the bookstore and take pictures of illustrations you like. What kind of style? And they're like, well, I just want it to be in color. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need to go look. Do you like whimsical? Do you like realistic? Do you like comical? So it's always a huge education. A lot of people use the online aggregates. Like they'll use uh, Fiverr, which I really don't recommend a lot of times just because they don't have the same vetting process as some of the others. Sometimes we'll put a job up on Upwork and that one tends to work for us. But the one that we have really been having success with is uh, searching the hashtag illustrator on Instagram. But there are a lot of agented ones on there and they'll tell you. So, I mean, it'll come up with all the hashtags and that, and then you can look at their style. You can communicate right with them. In fact, you can communicate with any author pretty much anywhere on just Instagram and <laughs> Facebook. You find them on there. You can talk right to them about where they got their illustrations. Yeah, that's a very good point because Instagram allows those artists to have their portfolio in all of those different posts they've had. And I think we found our cover art. It was recommended by Brian McDonald, but ultimately we did go to a website for the poetry book, Calling in Black. We found an amazing illustrator. And what was interesting is to custom illustrate costs a certain amount that was really expensive, but also to find art that was already done in that style by that author that hadn't found a home yet as a record cover or a book cover was an interesting way to partnership at a more affordable cost. Then you're customizing one illustration and you know strategically covering up. <laughs> well, I would call that personalization, but it actually helps both parties. And at the same time, they might limit the licensing to this book of poetry and that they can still own the rights to it 
if they were to make a rock poster out of it. So there's some nuances there for the listener that oftentimes you're licensing with illustrators specific usage. That's a great way to do it too, because if you go to a stock photo house, you really don't know if you use a, an image from that. Let's say you're doing a Christian fiction book and you use an illustration, and then somebody else uses it for a completely different genre, something that just coincides with everything that you're about. The same picture is on both of your books. That's a horrible problem. And that's been around for a really long time. But in the old days, they used to register who used art. Now anybody can buy it and put it on anything. And it's the same. And, you know, if you want an image that you license from Getty Imaging, there's certain kinds of things. Is this for publishing or broadcast or where you pay a certain rate for those sorts of things? But it is interesting. You mentioned Fiverr earlier. For things like making a business card or getting something done reasonably, it's amazing the amount of people and access you have. So there is there is a good value in it for some things. And for other things, you just have to kind of buyer beware, I think, that you don't know if they're using AI to write the thing that you're too lazy to write. We did have that happen. An author brought the illustrations to us. I went through them and I did a reverse image search on Google and the images had been used completely in another book from Fiverr. So we ended up having to hire a new illustrator to redo the whole book. But I mean, the investment that they put into the first one was like 25 bucks total, you know? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which should pretty much tell you. It is a good lesson. I hope people hear it here that it's one thing to get thumbnails or to develop something quick in a rough draft form. It's another thing when you want to put it out in the marketplace and you want it to be proprietary and that you own it and that it's unique to you versus the idea that the stock photo land is available to everybody globally. There's a likely danger that it's going to pop up somewhere else, especially if you like it enough that it's attractive. That means somebody else finds it attractive. Something else that people do is they pull stuff off the internet and they say if they if they slightly alter it, then it's theirs. And that is not true. I mean, I always say, run this test for yourself. Would you be upset if someone did that to something you had created? The answer is usually yes. So that's a red flag to maybe not do what you're thinking about doing. And the internet has 72 DPI on a lot of stuff, which is not enough to print. You have to have 300 DPI. So People do it all the time. They'll pull something off of Wikipedia for their pictures. And it's like, okay, who is the original owner of that photograph? We need to do provenance on that photo all the way back to the original source. And sometimes we had one that took 40 hours of our time. They were willing to pay for it, but 40 hours to research the original source of the photos they had chosen for their book. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but I think it shows due diligence and that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, let me be sure that folks know that if they want to contact you or find out more about your company, they can go to conciergemarketing.com. And you're a great resource for editing, for proofing, for design, for layout, so many things. And I know that I brought you here because I have had to call you on the fly for crazy things like, hey, what do we do here? Or how does this happen? The cost of having an expert like you guide me on that has always been a big time saver. And so, you know, it's it's allowed us to have a great relationship of me at least having a resource that I don't have to learn it. You've done the same for me. I think you've titled a couple of books just on the fly for me. <laughs> and it's great fun. So those that yeah. want to know more or maybe are a writer or an illustrator or somebody who's thinking about publishing something, you can check in with Concierge Marketing and, and maybe get a little advice from them. 
But Lisa, I appreciate you so much for just in general who you are in my world, but also for sharing your insights and inspiration today. Thank you. I appreciate you everything you're doing too. And I appreciate our relationship too. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing and crafty co-producing by Tucker Hazel. The original music theme was created and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Diane Johansson, Tony Deo, and Tanner Dykstra. Please feel free to dash off a review on social media to help grow this creative community. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right, dot fun, as in dot was so fun. Bye for now. La, 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 la. Stare